Welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm Dr. Eric Crampton, Chief Economist with the Initiative. Today, we've got with us Matthew Birchall, a recent hire here at the Initiative, a historian who's doing some work for me or with us on infrastructure funding and financing and how we used to be able to pay for things, and a special guest who knows more about how roads get funded than... I'm not sure if there's anybody in the country who's got a better sense of the history of this stuff than you do, Scott. Scott Wilson, one of the experts in this in road pricing. He's worked in congestion charges, charging. He knows how land transport funding works. I'm keen to explore a bit around the petrol excise holiday, what we should be thinking about the sustainability of the land transport funding system as we continue to have erosion of it, where previously it's been around user charges. Now it looks like it's a shift back to the general tax base. We'll start thinking through how that works what better options might be, and perhaps some better options for funding and financing the roads in future. So good af- well, it's afternoon now. I'm not sure when we'll be putting it out or when people will be listening, but good afternoon, everybody. Great to have you. Now, Scott, first, how did we decide to put user charges on the roads in the first place and to set the thing up in that kind of a way? Because when I was a kid growing up in Canada, the roads weren't funded that way. There were taxes on petrol, but it wasn't a dedicated fund on this stuff. How did New Zealand come to decide that user financing, user charges, was a way to fund the roads? It it sort of goes back to a report that was done in the late 1960s by Wilbur Smith Associates. It was a big report into transport in in New Zealand, and it looked across all modes. And one of its recommendations was for road funding, there should be some sort of user pays. And there'd been fuel tax for a long time, and that money had been general revenue to the government. Uh, you could say there's some form of user pays, but it actually recommended something more sophisticated, which was a distance weight tax for trucks. And you know, New Zealand's land transport system at the time was heavily regulated. The railways had a statutory monopoly on freight. And that report said, look, if you're going to get rid of that monopoly, you should have a system that recovers the cost of maintaining the roads from the vehicles that cause the most damage. And that was when road user charges were introduced. And of course, in parallel to that was, well, where do you get the money from the vehicles that, that are petrol powered? And that's where there was fuel tax. So we gradually moved towards a model of more and more user pays. So it goes back to a report from the 1960s when like, everything in transport was a mess, right? We had all of these rules about who, which trucks could go, how far, what had to go by rail. So it was all mixed up in the deregulation of that mess. It was. And the deregulation of that, I mean, yeah, the, the rule, there were literally police who would stop trucks to see, have you got a license to haul this, these goods this distance? And trucking companies would haul goods up to, say, from Wellington to, say, Levin, and then they would offload, put it on another truck, and then take it to Wanganui so they could get around these laws. Economists joke sometimes about the concept of a negative railroad, right? So you hear these arguments around multiplier effects and how much better things are if you get more people employed. Well, I think it was Bastia who'd come up with the idea of the negative railroad where you start forcing people to unload and reload the freight at certain points all along the way to create more employment. So we've effectively had through regulation the negative railroad. It's beautiful that the fixing of that mess brought in consideration of user charging. Now, when they were bringing that in, did people get all excited about, well, what about poor people who can't afford it or those kinds of issues? Because that comes in a lot when we start thinking about congestion charging here. There are, of course, tons of really good ways around those problems, better ways of dealing with it than munting the price system. How did they think about it that period? Well, the first introduction, of course, was for trucks. So when you talk about heavy vehicles, the quid pro quo was the trucking industry got to compete with rail. And in exchange for that, you pay more to use the roads. So you pay for the damage you cause to the roads. 
And because they had a bigger market and had more freedom to operate, they accepted that they'd have user pays. And actually from the start, that system for heavy vehicles and diesel vehicles as well, and at the time there weren't an awful lot of diesel cars, that money was hypothecated for land transport. Not formally in a separate account, but it was basically said this money is going to go on roads. And then as reforms continued in the the 80s, it was decided that part of the money that came from fuel tax should also go into a similar fund. And this is when the National Roads Fund was set up. I think it was at 1989 or 1991, I can't exactly remember. And that fund had a proportion of fuel tax and all of the road user charges revenue, and that was money to be spent on highways and actually public transport as well for the central government contribution to public transport. In recognition of the idea that that benefited road users, that there was some public transport spending was actually beneficial as a second best option because technically you couldn't do congestion pricing, um, say for the the railway from the Hutt Valley to Wellington benefited people. Yeah, that's totally understandable. It's it's always been a second best argument around public transport where in a first best world, if you ran congestion charges, then people who are running at congested times, they would pay more for the use of the roads. Ideally, you would have even the buses paying the congestion charge, but as a per-passenger fee, it would be nothing. And that would encourage people who could to flip onto buses or to shift their time of travel. So in the absence of being able to do that, subsidizing the buses made sense. What's been kind of depressing in the discussions around congestion charging is that people want to subsidize public transit even more if we're going to put in a congestion charge, when really, if you do congestion charging properly, you've kind of undone the case for having... Uh, public transit subsidies. Yeah, that, that's basically right. I mean, the, the the whole there is a problem of peak demand in public transport. That means that to provide all that capacity for peak demand, there's a lot of capital spending involved, and you can't recover that from fare revenue in, in the current environment. So, because that those assets sit idle for most of the day, and they may do look a train may come from Upper Hutt to Wellington, do two big long full trips at peak, and then it has to be parked for the rest of the day. So for most of the day, about a third of the of, of the capacity is probably being utilised, and then at peak times you have to wake up the rest of the capacity, and that's the fundamental problem of urban public transport compared to other public transport, like you know domestic airline flights where you can spread demand during the day and, and, and that capacity. There are peaks, but it's not as peaky as urban public transport. Yeah, Scott, can we perhaps put this into uh, international context? So I'm really interested to to know if any of the animating ideas behind this report were formed from a close study of global case studies. Well, yes, the, the, the example, when New Zealand introduced the road user charges for heavy vehicles, it was partly modelled on what Oregon had done, and Oregon had introduced such a system for trucks, oh, uh, way back into the 1920s, and it had a weight mileage tax, still does have it. And so they looked at Oregon and said, look, this this is a way you can do this. There were other US states that did it at the time. And so that was a starting point. But there was a lot of first principle in terms of economics applied to thinking about that. And hypothecation for fuel tax is quite common in the United States. It's been around for a long time, and it was set up when the state highways were set up. The federal fuel tax was introduced, and it still exists today, although it's woefully inadequate to pay for the state highways. So over the last 20 years or so, it seems as though the connection between the land transport fund and road funding has been getting eroded. We've been seeing more giant projects that national governments will go in and throw public money at giant roading projects outside of the land transport fund. They called it roads of national significance. The more recent Labour government has been 
throwing streams of funding into the land transport fund and then using the land transport fund for all kinds of things that have nothing to do with the roads. It kind of looks like money going in for from road users, somewhat approximates money going out to road users, but it's gotten really opaque. What's been your sense of that kind of erosion of the tight user fees, hypothecation, here's the fund framework? Yeah, I, I, what, I mean, what's happened, and, and it's important to know, that we went through a bit of an evolution in the 1990s where we had part of the fuel tax went into the fund and increasing amounts of that fuel tax got put into the fund. And it was decided, I think this is around about 2005, 2006, was when that government, Labour government, introduced crown funding for specific projects. And then uh, when it became the national government got elected in 2008, they went on the promise of fully hypothecating the fuel tax revenue. So that was trying to bring a full user pays model. But frankly, there wasn't enough money coming in to do what their ambitions were. So this is when crown funding started to creep in. And it, it wasn't very much in the early days, but it was much higher in the latter part of that government. So a lot of crown funding went into what you said, roads of national significance. And now, of course, we've got uh, ambitions for what, what called rapid transit in Auckland and Wellington. And there's a lot of crown money basically being thrown at a range of different projects, uh, which you know, in some sense does un undermine the current model. It's, it's not so much user pays. And sure, governments do want to put a lot of capital in, into these networks that they can't get out of, out of users. But the, the, the questions start to become, you know, what is the link between what users pay and what they get? And, and it is starting to break down. Now, how much of that problem is really a funding and financing one? Because I can imagine that'd be impossible to pay the upfront capital costs of great big roading projects out of the current revenues out of excise and road user charges. But I can totally imagine for a road that would make sense, you'd be able to make the bond payments on it. Was this really then just a problem of not having an appropriate ring-fenced funding and financing mechanisms so that road user charges would pay off the debt, both the interest and the principal of it, rather than trying to pay the upfront capital cost. Exactly. I mean, we've got a model that is called pay-as-you-go. So the, the, the revenue that would come in every year would be spent out every year, and the idea was that the capital cost of a road, I mean, could, could be spread over three or four years, but it'd be the current revenue every year paying for it. Once the road is built, that's it. So the capital of that road has been paid for by road users who never actually used it at the time, and the future road users are only paying for the maintenance of that road because the capital has basically been spent and written off. I mean, it's on the books, but it doesn't really mean anything. And that what that did was meant that when very large projects, Transmission Gully is an example, but also parts of the Waikato Expressway, Puhoi to Walkworth, those big projects are too big for the Land Transport Fund to swallow on a pay-as-you-go model. And from an intergenerational equity point of view, I mean, th these roads are going to be there for 30 or 40 years. The idea that people in for three or four years are paying for it with the current revenue for a road they can't even use, and then future generations aren't paying for it. It's, it, it worked all very well when the, most of the land transport spending was around maintenance and there wasn't much capital. But with ca big capital, it's just, it's not sustainable and it's, it's actually not even fair. Yeah, it makes no kind of sense to me that you'd be trying to pay for the capex out of the current user fees. It makes a lot more sense that you'd have bonds backed by revenues from road users that would fund the capex, and then you get the ongoing use of the road that pays for the actual use of the road, as well as the capex along uh, over the life of it. I think you're underestimating the problem if you're saying that it's a life of 30 years. Like maybe you have to reseal the road or dig dig some of it up and rebuild it after 30 years. But if you look at something like Transmission Gully, like 
that is just massive earthworks, right? Mm. The vast bulk of that is going to stand for centuries, yep. and barring completely catastrophic earthquakes. And even then, the cost of rebuilding it will be less than the cost of building it in the first place. So it's, you should be looking over century on this stuff. Exactly. And, and in several European countries where they have got road user charging systems for trucks anyway, the model they use to work out what should be paid for it is based upon looking at the depreciated life of the assets they're paying for. So they depreciate the life of the assets and exactly what you say, if you've built a brand new road, the earthworks and that are considered to be like have a life, you depreciate over 100 years. Or like a, tun- a digger tunnel, you depreciate over a long time. The road service is a whole different story, depends upon usage. Yeah. And, that's, and that's how you do it. You treat it like other capital assets in other sectors. What lies behind that very short time framework, Scott? Uh, that three, four year, you can pay it back. I mean, what you're saying is it's eminently sensible that if you're putting in transmission gully... Because they're not issuing debt for it, right? They're not mm-hmm. issuing specific debt for it. So if you're having to pay a, pay for it out of the land transport fund that's being funded by current road users... So it's the basic funding model that's the problem. That's correct. So when, when Labour started breaking that model with the capital projects and then National took it up on steroids with roads of national mm-hmm. significance, there was a real problem in funding and financing those works. But because they weren't using ring debt that we paid off by road users through the National Land Transport mm-hmm. Fund, we started breaking the overall user pays component of the system. That's right. And, and this was forecast in the 1990s. There were, there were studies, quite theoretical studies done by the, the government at the time, one called the Land Transport Pricing Study and uh, and other studies on road reform that said, look, there's a problem of big capital and roads that um, at the time we're not spending money on this, but we will in the future. How are we going to pay for this? And we're going to have to find some sort of model where capital is spread over the life of the asset, and it's not just the pay-go model. Oh, what a mess. Cool. I had not realized that in the infrastructure funding and financing problems that I've been seeing in water and that I've been thinking about in that space were this substantial also in roading. I've seen it in thinking about sort of new projects, like whether we should build a new Mount Vic tunnel or not. Well, would a toll on the thing be able to pay off the debt that you'd incur for it? I hadn't been thinking about it as the underlying problem in roads of national significance and those other messes. So thank you for that. So earlier this year, the government responded to some substantial increases in global fuel prices by providing a petrol excise holiday. Now, it drove me nuts because the policy implementation was nonsense. The policy justification was also nonsense. But there's a bigger picture issue around the sustainability of road financing over time. So they've extended it now to December. It's still coming out of the COVID fund. If this continues, it'll have to go on to general revenues. Where do you see this going? Because... Currently, the case for being able to maintain and extend roads is based on that we're paying for them as road users. If this all shifts onto the general tax base, is it going to be possible to keep keep the roads up? It'll turn into a political argument against other every other thing government could be spending money on. And, and that's exactly the risk that you face. It's exactly the risk that ha- has happened in, in some other jurisdictions. It was a problem in the United Kingdom where... Uh, funding for roads was always part of uh, you know, competing against the NHS, competing against education, and that's always a very hard fight to make. And depending upon the political sway of whatever government it was, I mean, Margaret Thatcher threw a lot of money into roads because she liked roads. She saw you know, cars as a symbol of freedom. And then the the beginning of the Blair government, they pulled a lot of that back and, and cut that right back to the bone. And then they put money into it because Treasury said, this, actually, there's some quite good investments here. But that switching back and forth... You know, adds a lot of cost. It, it adds inefficiency. 
and yeah, what are you trying to deliver for users? You know, if you treat this, I mean, I think roads are treated as a network utility, and there's consumers. You want that system to work well, and what you see, and you see it in some parts of of the UK, particularly at the local level. These these changes in funding mean there's a lot of potholes. There's lots of poor maintenance in parts of the network, and we see this in water. Ugh. Okay, so we will wind up in a spot if they continue this where the roads are going to be in a bit of a mess. They're going to be in bun fights all the time with every other potential thing that government could be spending money on. It'll come to some kind of crisis, which could lead to either continued pushes against roads and more use of public transit, or a far better road funding and financing model. In my mind, you'd want one where cost of capital is being returned back to the crown. The crown is earning some money on all of these roads that it er that it actually owns. There should be a competitive rate of return on the land that's mm. underlying the roads. They should have to be outbidding other uses of that land. I love thinking about uh, uh, city councils selling off, say, parking spots to adjacent shop owners to put up like tables for a cafe instead of parking if the parking spot isn't particularly valuable there. Mm. Or, well, if you've got... A really wide road maybe you could sell off one lane of it for other uses and those sorts of things come in once you start requiring that a cost of capital be returned back to the owners of the underlying land what sorts of other opportunities would you see coming in like if this all explodes if they continue trying to break the link between road user funding or payments made by road users and funding of the roads so it goes on to the general tax base when that all blows up what would you like to see come out of the end of this? Well, I'd like there to be some useful debate about actually having some form of road pricing and whether it's some sort of, whether it's just taking what we've got with road user charges as a simplified model and have a bit more sophistication in cities or, or however it goes, but to have to a system where you actually are internalising the cost of providing this infrastructure. And I don't, I, I struggle to see why there should be too much political debate about that. You might have a debate about how much you, you put into that infrastructure and how much capital goes into roads, and and, and that could be a, a point for that. But fundamentally, the maintenance and, and sustainability of the network should be the, the bottom line. And then how much more you put into it can be a function about what pricing you've got and how much you're willing to, to charge and what users are willing to pay for. And And that is going to change over time. We will go to... You know, lower emission vehicles, we will ultimately have a fleet which is uh, mostly electric vehicles and hybrid vehicles. They won't pay much fuel tax. I mean, ultimately, fuel tax is unsustainable in the long run. It may be 20 or so years before it it's completely fades out in New Zealand and other jurisdictions it will be sooner. Uh, there's plenty of jurisdictions around the world looking at, at how fuel tax is going to run out. I mean, the recent study in, in the UK was indicating that, look, we've got to do something about electric vehicles and pricing for them because if we don't, Traffic volumes yep. are going to go up 40 to 50% because they're not paying to use the roads. Yeah. How close are we on getting congestion charging in Auckland? It's being talked about. It sounds like central government is ready to go with it. Is this something that's now months away or is it still years away? Well, it'll be, I mean, if, if the government was going to introduce legislation and say, look, we're going to do this, it's probably about two or three years away, assuming legislation gets passed and they get the go-ahead to do that. It'll take about two or three years between you know, saying yes to it actually being implemented and I would say that, look, given what has been put in the public domain about what the models are likely to be, City Rail Link, I think, is meant to open in 2025. So you can see some synergy with opening up a central city Auckland congestion pricing um, system and having the City Rail Link open and, and that being good for the, for the downtown city as a, as a first step. 
one of the other reasons that I like congestion charging is I think back to like how water infrastructure has worked. And when Capity put a user fee on water use, they found they were looking at a substantial upgrade of their infrastructure because there was too much demand at a price of zero. Once they put an actual per unit price on the thing, they found that their capital could last a lot longer. They wouldn't have to do the upgrade right away. You can save on CapEx because you're not having to meet peak demand at peak times at a price of zero, right? So without congestion charging, it's equivalent to saying that every movie theater has to be able to provide at all times of the day capacity sufficient to run a blockbuster film at the price of a Tuesday afternoon matinee. So that kind of makes no sense. You think that there would be similar effects in attenuating the need for road upgrades for greater capacity by putting in congestion charges to be able to knock those peaks down over to the shoulders and all the way down through. Absolutely. I, I mean, that, that's going to be one of... I mean, the, the first benefit is you'll get more trip reliability, you'll have more certainty about trip times at peak times, and you'll spread demand, and you'll be able to delay, if not cancel, certain road upgrades for extra capacity. I mean, if it's just a bit... It, it should have quite significant long-term savings in that respect, but also give you a signal of demand if you find that you don't need... You know, you've put in pricing and actually that's working well for the long run, then you don't need to provide that extra capacity. But if, if demand continues to grow and more price, you start to realise, well, actually, there's a high value in travelling at this time on this particular route and therefore, you know, does this actually make a commercial return to pay for this? And, I mean, I th- someone who would say was one of the, perhaps the, the grandfathers of road pricing was Gabriel Roth, who was involved in the Smead Report in the 1960s. I remember having lunch with him a few years ago in London where he said, look, this is the thing that's being missed out, that actually if we have road pricing and we still have congestion and the price has to keep going up, that's telling us we need to build capacity at this point. It's an obvious, or it has seemed an obvious point just as for an economist who thinks about this stuff. I keep dreaming of a system where you put the congestion charges in first, you, you stop doing anything on road expansions or new roads until you get the congestion charges in, you get information provided by the congestion charges about what actual consumer demand is. That information could tell you whether there would be an ability to pay off a bond that would be levied for either putting more lanes on a road or digging another tunnel through Mount Vic or another Auckland Harbour Bridge or a tunnel or whatever. It'll start giving you some signals about real demand rather than notional demand because there's a willingness to pay behind it. Use user fees on that new kit to fund the bonds that paid for the kit and have it entirely on a user pays basis so there's no more subsidies from the general tax base to cover the capex or get get pulled in on on uh, opex occasionally what are the uh, the main forces that stop us in your opinion scott from adopting a user fees approach well it's, it's public acceptability fundamentally in some cases where uh, other jurisdictions have tried to do this and my favorite example is copenhagen Copenhagen, the, the, the Danish government was elected, this is about 11 years ago, and included a platform in its manifesto of congestion pricing in Copenhagen. Now, Copenhagen has 30% mode share for cycling and walking, 30% for public transport, and about the same for cars. They couldn't convince people in Copenhagen that congestion pricing was a good idea because the way they went about it, they drew a very blunt cordon around Copenhagen. And the people around the edge of it said, how dare you, you're just making this very, very unfair for us to take a short journey, or I've got my shop with inside this, I'm going to be penalised. And they said, are we doing this to make money so we can spend on all sorts of other things? And people (laughs) said, well, it's just a new tax. They didn't sell, you're going to save time. So you 
to bring people on board, there has to be a coalition of people. I see it between people on, you'd say, on the left and the right, the people on the right who want to have less congestion, more reliable trips, the more user pays, and people on the left who say, look, we don't want to have traffic congestion, we want to have lower emissions, we want more use of public transport. So this actually gives you an efficient outcome that meets all that you want. It can't just be one side. It can't just be we're going to raise money. It can't just be we want fewer cars. It has to be we're going to have a better economy, better environment, and it will benefit us all generally. Oh, that sounds like a gr- wonderful place to end it. Thank you so much, Scott. I hope that, well, things don't break down and that they just end the dumb petrol excise holiday and the road user charge holiday when it expires in December rather than continuing it. But if they don't do that, I hope that the eventual crisis is what gets us to the far better funding and financing system that we could have. Thank you so much, Scott and Matthew, and thank you, listeners. 